This episode is a little bit different. I'm delighted to have a guest joining me who has been one of my mentors, Ingrid Hurwitz. I first met Ingrid when I was completing training in the Enneagram as a profiling tool. In this podcast, you'll hear about Ingrid's experience growing up in a culture of apartheid and how having her thinking and early conditioning challenged at university became the foundations for her work with organizations later on. Thanks so much, John. Such a pleasure to be here. Yeah, you're welcome. So I'd like to go on a journey with you to explore the cultures that shaped you and the cultures that you have shaped. Um, I'm particularly interested in the way that you use the Enneagram as well, because that's a that's a point of contact for the two of us. We've uh, you know, you've coached me uh, for some time using the Enneagram, and uh, I know that you're very knowledgeable in that area. So yeah, I'm very interested in uh, the use of the Enneagram in the in the in the space of culture in workplaces. But let's start um, maybe a bit earlier than that, and uh, tell us a little bit about where you grew up and any lessons that you learned from childhood that maybe carried forward into your adult life uh, and your career? Yes, oh, thanks for that, John. And I do think that my childhood exposure to the white supremacist culture of apartheid in the 1970s and 80s, mm. when I was growing up and at school, fundamentally shaped my outlook on reality, my sense of humanity, my values, yeah, my approach to people in general. You know, growing up in that environment, I witnessed discrimination firsthand. Yeah. And luckily, I think it didn't make sense to me. Mm. So somehow it didn't sink in to the extent that it might have. And to the extent that I've seen it having fully saturated people's mindsets mm. in the culture around me. And I think it was because I was exposed to some black children um, who lived with us. And, you know, it was just so stark and so confusing that I think it created some cracks in the propaganda bubble that I was brought up in. And the history textbooks that we were being taught, it was all complete lies. Mm. You know, I literally grew up in a police state, and I only realized that later because we were so separated from reality. There was complete mm. censorship, no internet in, in those days in the 80s. And, um, yeah, just a, a sense of cognitive dissonance. It was communicated to me as what we call the swat khafar, the black danger, that these, you know, dangerous people were going to overrun the country. And, not, I mean, you can imagine the, mm -hmm. the kind of propaganda that we were fed. Then when I got to university later on, I was kind of sprouting some of the propaganda that I'd internalized know about the group areas act and there were mm. referenda up. and one of the law students whom I'd befriended in one of my courses and he was three years older than me and you know more politically conscientized I was going on about this segregation being a good idea and he looked me straight in the eyes and he said to me who told you that mm. 
suddenly, and I remember it as a flashbulb memory, mm. the entire hermetically sealed bubble of lies around my consciousness mm. shattered. And I realized that I had been brainwashed my whole life. And um, yeah, so that began a process for me of unbrainwashing. And I made a very, very conscious and deliberate effort to try and scour my consciousness of white supremacy. Mm -hmm. So even, you know, and I'm sure some of it's still there. Just going back, you you spoke about cognitive dissonance because of the stories you'd heard. So it must have been quite challenging to hear those stories, but then also to have an influence that said, this is the right thing, separation and, you know. Yeah. Uh, so I don't apartheid think is the right thing for you know that message. Yes, exactly. And I don't think I joined the dots between the stories that I was hearing of violence and the fact that that was a result of apartheid policy, and that what was causing the violence. Mm. You know, for me, it sounded ad hoc. And some of it may have even fueled the apartheid mindset is, you know, blacks are dangerous. And I'm so lucky I don't have to go to school in the township. No, I, I had no political frame mm. to understand what that violence was about. And I didn't understand the anti-apartheid struggle. You know, in our minds, the ANC was a terrorist organization. The faces of apartheid leaders were banned. You couldn't. You couldn't wear a T-shirt with Steve Biko's face on it. You'd be arrested. Mm. No. So, yeah, my my siblings were older than me, and they were at university, and their houses were raided for banned literature, things like that. So, I don't think people really appreciate the intensity of mm. the apartheid regime as a police state. And even white people don't think of it as a police state now because no. they haven't re-educated themselves. So we had the Truth and Reconciliation Commission um, when we had the transition to democracy where people were sharing their stories, you know, of relatives being abducted and imprisoned and tortured. And white people didn't watch the proceedings on the whole. Only, you know... Left-wing whites even bothered to watch watch right. the broadcast. Okay, so so what you're saying is that thinking is still around today, very still, much still so. alive and kicking. Very much so, mm. and the, you know, state capture and corruption in the public sector, and you know, the problems in the current government are often attributed to race. So I think it's being denormalized and, and it has been, but my parents' generation are still very racist. Mm -hmm. Very. So you had this um, process at uni where you were, your thinking was challenged, basically, and your your... I guess that shell you were talking about started to crumble. Well, it shattered. It shattered. It absolutely yeah. shattered. And then I realized 
the extent of my brainwashing and it became a project and it still is a core life project to de-racialize my thinking mm -hmm. and to to really yeah to undo propaganda in my brain and to be very conscious of the ways in which people are indoctrinated and brainwashed and it includes within organizations you know the ways in which culture is is forced on people to an extent and the and the extent to which leaders and organizations try to convince people of what their values should be and tell them you know mm -hmm. these are our values and swallow this and also you know the level of exploitation that often goes on so I, I bring this kind of egalitarian and emancipatory mindset into my work in organizations. And I'll challenge an executive team and say, you know, you can't embed the strategy. Mm. You can't cascade the strategy. These are adult human beings who've got an understanding of a level of the organization and are quite close to where things are going wrong. And you know, top-down strategies don't work. Mm -hmm. and, and and I challenge them on the word buy-in. Like when someone comes to you and tries to get you to buy into something, how do you feel? If your spouse comes to you and gets yeah. you to try and buy into something, <laughs> yes. <no? laughs> there's an instant emotional resistance. Yeah. So yes. what's a better way to work together? Yeah, well, you do see, you know, I'm sure this happens in South Africa. You get these um, strategy values, vision documents that get created and then they're they're all over the place and they're on the wall and everything. But like, I've, you know, I've been in organizations where that's happened, but they just don't get spoken about. It's just a, a moment in time where this, uh, you know, a leadership, senior leadership team creates this document and it doesn't get cascaded at all and I, i'm now got to the stage where i've been involved in in using those uh, uh, companies values and, and vision if you like but trying to it's like just having a conversation about it without any um desire to coerce or embed anything mm -hmm. so it's just you know here's some values and very actually very often what i find is that the values, if they're done well, they're already in the organization. They're already in existence. So you don't actually need to embed anything. You know, it, it, it's already there and it's happening. So, you know, there's this sort of implicit assumption that something's missing or lacking and we have to create a document to fix that problem. But if you go and talk to the people in the organization, you know, you know, people are generally decent and respectful to each other most of the, the vast majority of people so a lot of those values are already uh present and i find that i find it fascinating the way uh there's a need to change to embed that word embed is uh that um i think i'm allergic to that yeah me too embed cascade and buy-in all go together and betray a kind of top-down mindset where we think people's souls and minds are blank and we can install something in them of our choosing. And it's the same as all forms of pedagogy, you know, all the educational models is assuming that people come in 
to a classroom as a tabula rasa, you know, that their minds are a blank surface and mm-hmm. you can shove them full of information. Rather than appreciating that these are people with life histories and prior learning and experience and insights and depth of soul, you know, some people have been through things that have made them into the kind of people that I could only dream of being at the level of inner resilience, Mm. gravitas, presence, uh, ethics. And, you know, I've met absolutely unbelievable people who are, you know, a, a junior manager in a rural branch of a bank. They've got more character and depth and better leadership skills than some of the top executives I've met because of what they've been through. Mm, just their life lessons. Absolutely. Yeah. And having no food as a child and sitting around one bowl of milli meal, five children, mm. and going home and having to walk to school in winter with no sh- shoes. Now, when people have survived those kinds of things, they've made very profound choices about the kind of people they want to be. Mm-hmm. And that kind of genuine substance really stands out to me. I can't really describe it. I think a spiritual depth of substance mm-hmm. and clarity of vision in those people about what matters because in adversity, I think, is when we make our most, most powerful choices. Mm-hmm. And then you take someone like that and try and embed something in them. Yeah, it's insulting and infantilizing. But I love what you were saying about, you know, strategy and pieces of paper. We've got so many examples of that, you know, mm. like Enron apparently had their values carved on big marble slabs in the entrance hall. That's one of the anecdotes that I love. And then you find, you know, in South Africa, there's one organization that had their values on these huge perspex slabs. And, you know, I don't think anybody even noticed them Mm. other than lean against them while they were smoking. (laughs) When you're talking about uh, education, you know, you made me think about my own schooling, which is very often it was a one-way communication of information so that old you know uk education system was uh, it's like embedding information into people's brains but the best teachers were the ones who engaged you in a conversation it was like a two-way a two-way process but unfortunately they were pretty rare when i was going through school you know um in the uk in secondary um education and it was mostly that flavor of one-way information, um, almost Victorian, you know, seen but not heard, sitting there yeah. in silence. <laughs> I'm very much a believer in the need for conversations in organizations. And, you know, the work that I do now is about developing people at different levels in organizations and actually helping leaders to become the developers of their own people. Uh, because they can't do that without having a two-way conversation, you know. So, and that the the richness that you get out of those conversations, you see it straight away. You know, it's like people being seen, valued, and heard by their leaders is a very powerful process for them. So, yeah, you you just reminded me of the contrast between that and the traditional education process, you know, the, the one way, even at university, you know, it's just everyone sits there and 
the lecturers just writing on the black on the blackboard or just talking and everyone's silent. Absolutely. There's so many parallels and a lot of my work in higher ed and my thinking around curriculum design and learning, because I was head of learning and development for a while as well, mm. fed into my leadership work. And you know, coming across that embedding one-way mindset has really been illuminating to me as the thing not to do. Mm. You know, I was once invited into give a proposal on a well-being wellness strategy. And you know, this executive asked me if I could help them to do a campaign with posters and this and that. And I said, well, it would be much easier if you just gave me a bag of money and I went and flushed down the toilet because that's <laughs> how much <laughs> you know, these glossy brochures and the strategy pamphlets and you know, those kinds of things, even road shows are a waste of money. I I, I don't agree to them. You know, mm. if executives ask me, I tell them straight, you're wasting your money. You know, that's that doesn't mean anything to people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They don't remember anything about it. And they're actually just sitting there thinking, oh, God, not another one of these. And the glossy brochure isn't even worth the money, the paper it's printed on. And so, I mean, I recently ran a session where one of the executives came up with the strategy and he said, now we've got the strategy Bible and, you know, this document that we're going to adhere to as doctrine. And I love that metaphor. I jumped on it. I said, that's right. And what is a Bible? Is a Bible a text that just with piece of paper with writing on it that sits on the shelf? Who would think of the Bible like that, you know? And it's a very Christian environment that I'm working in, mm -hmm. so I could, go along, I could go along with the metaphor, you know, even though I wouldn't think of myself as a Christian, not that, you know, I don't want to get into my spiritual history and love of mysticism and all of that, but I said, you know, the Bible is a living document, mm. and it's not a it's something that is in circulation in people's speech and language, and it's a source of inspiration. And people get together in small groups and talk about it, and they talk about its meaning for their lives and what to do and how it's changing them. Hmm. So if you want to think of the strategy as a Bible, great, but let's go with the metaphor for real um, and not think we're going to go around Bible bashing and indoctrinating people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Gave rise to quite a good conversation, you know, of, of strategy as a living conversation. It's been something I've been thinking about for a very long time. If we go back to the chronological order, you were at uni having your your thoughts shattered, your your what do you call it that? Your worldview. Your worldview was shattered. Yeah. So Having had that, having that happen to you, how would you? How did that then influence your approach after that? Did that make you more uh, willing to question the way organisations were being run, and you know, to question the thinking that was happening in organisations? Do you think that had an influence on you? Absolutely, that I think that I realised the extent to which our worldview can be conditioned. And that we absorb unconscious assumptions about things like hierarchy and organograms and 
education and, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of personal processes and human dynamics we often take for granted. Gender relationships are taken for granted mm-hmm. in so many contexts. And I think having something shattered to that extent made me realize that we can change our thinking completely mm-hmm. and that we can be more cognitively agile and that we can step into different paradigms and ways of seeing reality. I want to engage with things critically and with metacognitive awareness about where does this thinking process come from? What paradigm does it emerge from? You know, there are different bases of thinking. could come from a scientific paradigm or it could come from a way of thinking about human beings as unfolding in a more subjective way. And I like to be conscious of my foundations of my thinking. Mm-hmm. And in executive work, I do the same. Obviously, I don't use, you know, very unfamiliar language. Someone who does a, you know, master's degree in finance is not going to be familiar with that kind of discourse. But mm-hmm. the underlying idea is, can we radically shift our thinking patterns? And can we relate to other people's thinking patterns? appreciating that your background and education and conditioning is totally different to mine. Yes. And we have to find each other somehow if we're going to work together. Mm-hmm. I need to appreciate and value the strengths of your thinking pattern and and we find each other somehow. So that a lot of my work is about that, about appreciating difference and you know, when it comes to diversity and inclusion type of work, mm-hmm. I prefer to do it from the perspective of different problem-solving styles, different thinking styles, different ways of relating to one another that kind of cut across any ethnic or social demographic variables. You're currently doing a PhD uh, the University of Johannesburg in state change and personal transformation using the Enneagram. Mm. So what I'm curious about is how the link between challenging people's thinking or understanding their thinking style and state change. How do, how do you go? Because Because they're different things, aren't they? They actually really, really are. And I think I started off the PhD thinking about thinking. It was all about metacognition. Mm. So, you know, questioning our own thought processes, thinking about the filters that we use to select information. I don't know if you're familiar with the ladder of inference. No, I'm not. It's that, you know, we're surrounded with data all the time. We've got terabytes of information Mm. coming at us every second whether it's, you know, digital information or the things people say or everything around us can be seen as information coming our way. But we have to filter and select in order to make sense of the world. Yes. And sometimes our sense-making strategies become very fixed so that we only notice things that confirm our pre-existing beliefs. Yes. So it leads to extreme cognitive bias. Yes. So yeah. that's where I started off the PhD was how do we loosen our thinking styles and open our minds as a way of behaving differently? This yeah. reminds me of um, 
when I did my training with Integral Coaching Canada, one of the Ooh. lines of development they worked on was they called it the cognitive line of development, but their definition of that was the ability to see different perspectives yes. and not to get stuck in one their description of the cognitive line was that that was like a lead line. For example, you couldn't develop on the emotional line or the interpersonal line if you didn't first develop on the cognitive line. So it's like, I must be able to take multiple perspectives in order to have some emotional intelligence and to have some interpersonal skills. You could see how that translates into interpersonal skills. If you can't see different perspectives, you're going to be limited in the interpersonal space because you won't see the other's perspective in a simple you know one person conversation i'm really curious about the state change thing though because i know from my own work that in coaching and in working with teams is when you when a state change occurs in a conversation that's something that people don't forget you know, that can become a very powerful coaching moment or you know a powerful moment in a in a team environment you started off looking at confirmation bias and the way people get stuck in their thinking but some for some reason you got you headed off towards state change so say a little bit about that it was actually because of my work with the enneagram sorry to interrupt can you just explain the Enneagram system for listeners who may not have encountered that yet. Sure, sure. So the Enneagram as a system describes our reality strategies. Some people talk about it in terms of personality type, but I don't like that because it makes it sound as though it's kind of baked in, in a way that is too static and boxing of people and also labeling. So I prefer to think about it as a reality strategy that we deploy mm -hmm. and it's a way of problem solving. It's a way of thinking about the world. It's a way of expressing one's autonomy and agency. So there are those three areas. The one is the mental center, our kind of cranial brain, as I like to call it. And then there's our heart brain, our cardiac brain which is our feeling center and how we connect with others, even if you think of it metaphorically, but there's a lot of neurophysiological evidence for all of this. And then our, our gut brain, you know, which is has got an intelligence all of its own. And so the Enneagram describes kind of stylistic preferences in our approach to life, in our mm. approach to decision-making, what counts as important information to us? So when we're looking at the world, what do we think of as salient in terms of our agenda? Mm. So the Enneagram describes all of this. It describes our instinctual preoccupations, the things we worry about, and then what we do about them. That's a, that's a lovely description, explanation. I'm a big fan of the Enneagram and I'm learning, I'm still learning a lot about it from you, Ingrid. So if I put myself in the position of, of coach and I'm working with a leader and we're working on their development, how do I use state change as a tool for their personal transformation in, and the Enneagram? What I try to do is invite a person into 
a relational space in which they can experience state change. Mm-hmm. And state change usually looks like becoming safe, present, and comfortable in one's body in the present moment with an awakening of these different centers of intelligence mm-hmm. in a way that they are more receptive to reality in a more attuned way and in a less resistant way. So not feeling so defended and also not being so preoccupied. So it's a state in which people are far more responsive Mm. to the situation in the moment. So they're not just reacting patterns from the past. They're not following a script that they developed when they were five years old unconsciously Mm. and those defense mechanisms you know those stuck patterns are the things that derail and inhibit us and kind of constrain our potential as adults because we don't know that we're running a script and the Enneagram work helps us to name those inhibiting parts of ourselves like say I've got a very active controller part as a leader and I'm quite angry, and I make people accountable in ways that make them feel small or afraid of doing something wrong, and they're walking on eggshells. And with the Enneagram, I might become aware of that controlling part and where it comes from. And in the process of relationship with the coach, that pattern begins to relax. And it's not because I've just made them aware of it, and most certainly not because I've criticized it. No. But because I've helped them to get a sense of the resources behind or underneath that, and that facilitates a process in which they can relax back into themselves and experience that depth of presence within that is not conditionable. And when someone is more based in that deeper part of themselves, that pattern can just naturally start to relax. So that's that's the more depth-oriented approach to the Enneagram. That's a lovely description. It makes a lot of sense. And um, what it makes me think of is in order to do that sort of work, you have to do some work, a lot of work on yourself so that you are like a tuning fork in that discussion and your your own quality of presence is such that what you're describing occurs because if you were if you were in there criticizing and saying you're doing it the wrong way you you would be a different person wouldn't you you'd be a completely different that would be a very different coaching approach whereas if you take the view that the quality of your presence is paramount in those sorts of coaching conversations then that's when I think some magic can happen. Because the other thing is if you know if people are, are softening and learning from that ex- coaching experience, then they start to change. They start to transform gradually. And then they start to, because they're transforming as a leader, they start to create a different culture in their organization because of who they are, not because of, what they know 
necessarily. It's about how they're showing up in the in the relationships with the people that they lead. That that's the depth that we need, I think, for real, genuine culture, leadership of culture. Is like taking responsibility for how I show up every second of the day in my interactions. That's where I have some power. Without I don't mean power as in active controller, I mean power as in the power of my presence. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, that's absolutely what it's about. So the first part you were mentioning is your presence as a coach. Mm. So because I've got a lot of trauma training and I teach a course on the Enneagram and trauma and I teach a certificate on trauma-informed coaching with the Enneagram, it's incredibly important for me to unshame people mm. because a lot these personality identifications that we have in our style, like hyperachiever or, you know, uh, even being avoidant of responsibility or fearful or very reserved, a lot of these things are shame-based identities or, or say, compensations for feelings of inadequacy and shame. Hmm. So we're able to create a space in which someone can be unshamed. And they can get in touch with just a fundamental okayness where they don't have to prove anything, where they're not constantly trying to promote a certain self-image and you know, therefore trapped in a certain script. More of their true self can unfold and become available. And then they're coming from a place of genuine power and confidence in mm -hmm. themselves. Mm. And I like the word power. I think it's a very important word. Mm. It's got negative connotations yes. because of how it's wielded and and it's wielded from a place of wounding, you know, and compulsion. Whereas genuine power is a magnificent thing. You know, in one of my courses, I have a module on embracing your authentic power. And when one trusts oneself and when one is in tune with a depth of good intention that comes from that deepest place within oneself, then the more power you can have from that place to impact the world and to, I sometimes use the metaphor of expanding one's territory. So if you have people's genuine well-being at heart and you think very carefully about how you do things, why not have power? Mm -hmm. Becomes less and less dangerous the more integrity you have. I wanted to ask you a few questions just to sort of wind up. The first one is Do you have any examples of insights that clients have had that have changed the way that they've approached leading culture? I'm sure that um, what you were just describing earlier would be part of that. You know, if, if, if I'm working on my Enneagram pattern and I start to relax some of those tense areas that would certainly lead to a different approach but I don't want to put words in your mouth do you have any examples of of insights that have occurred that you've seen and what you know what sort of changes in in leadership have that resulted in 100 percent so I think, you know, if we can compare, say, an Enneagram style at its default average with what 
one can do when one taps into the best of that Enneagram style mm. with greater awareness and consciousness. So one woman I worked with scaled up massively from a kind of departmental leadership role to the next level up. And next thing she was heading up a large division of an organization. Mm. And she was in the Enneagram terminology, she'd be called a mover and shaker. She is one of those people that is super goal oriented, very aware of her image, prestige, and status in the yes. organization, and very driven and very focused and efficient. No, the default there would be I don't have time for feelings. Feelings have a high drag coefficient. Let's just go, you know, yes. and trying to get people on board. Like I've got to get buy in for the strategy. So we've gotten to know each other and she knew the Enneagram and she asked me for help in transitioning into this new leadership role. And she was taking over from somebody who'd been very distractive and all of the senior managers were quite wounded. They'd been really hurt. And so we worked together on how we're going to both heal the organization mm. and do things very, very differently to get people engaged and to really appreciate their perspectives. She was also totally new to mm. that environment and the function that she was heading up, totally new. So she had to, she was on a massive learning curve. So we decided, okay, we're not going to do the three, seven, eight mover and shaker strategy. Mm -hmm. We're going to find the best in it. And we're going to figure out what to do, tapping into the gifts and the strengths of that reality strategy. So what are those gifts? So if we look at the thinking style of Enneagram 7, mm. at its worst, it's scattered, fragmented, and absolutely based on fantasy rather than the reality of the organization. So what are we rather going to do? We are rather going to think with some sobriety about where we're at, and we're going to listen. A major breakthrough for that thinking style is to actually slow down and listen mm -hmm. and not be a popcorn brain of, of visionary ideas, which no one takes seriously. And you've seen when a, one of these leaders gets up and speaks about their vision and everyone's just sitting there looking at them and the person mm -hmm. doesn't even notice that they've left everyone behind. So we decided, okay, how are we going to genuinely listen to what people are saying? And then, you know, within Enneagram style, the eight, very biased for action. Everything has to be done yesterday and no excuses. What's so difficult about it? Grow up. But their true essential quality is a genuine softness of heart and a magnanimity. They care for people mm -hmm. and they believe in their potential and they give people opportunities that people sometimes think, I can't do that. And they see that potential and they say, no, you can. And if they do it in a way that is empowering rather than grow up, of course you can. Mm -hmm. you know, yeah. Then they really, people are shocked by what they managed to accomplish under an mm. eight's kind of mentorship. And then for the three, that absolute goal-directed focus, everything, just go, 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 and putting kind of looking ahead, looking good ahead of 
really connecting with me. And, you know, the Enneagram 3 is at their best are so authentic and so tender-hearted. Mm-hmm. So we worked on a process for her. Instead of her going out and giving a roadshow and announcing the strategy, we had World Cafe-type processes where we got a huge environment, a big room, and we set up tables for the different teams in the organization. And they were interdependent across functions and silos, but they'd been working in silos. Mm-hmm. So we put them into their teams, and each team had a massive piece of paper. And at the center on each one, we put customer at the heart, and we drew a picture of a heart at the center of each piece of paper. And each team got to talk about what they love about their customers and what they really want to deliver and what they think their customers really need. And those were internal stakeholders or, you know, external customers. And then each team got a little chance to present on what they thought their value proposition was. And the rest of the teams got a chance to engage and ask questions and validate. So out of that process, we then prioritized elements of the strategy, like what is really going to make the difference to the success stories that our stakeholders are telling. Mm -hmm. And a question that I often like to ask as a strategy process question is, what stories are they going to be telling? So three years from now, our customers are going to be saying, I cannot believe how that place has turned around. It's amazing. Have you seen this? Let me show you. You No, you want your customers to be raving and you want your shareholders to be saying, that's the best management change we ever made. It's got a real powerful, liberating feel to it, that story. Yeah, I, I can imagine the people having lived under a leader that was that wasn't valuing them that, that was quite toxic to go into that you know must have been amazing they were terrified at first mm-hmm. because it was so unfamiliar and they didn't feel safe and that's you know like an analogy to the therapeutic process is are you creating enough relational safety for people to unfold mm. can they participate in a process with their full being they can't unless they feel safe. Mm-hmm. So we had to, we had to build trust. You know, we had to demonstrate that this is for real. This is not a trap. It's not a way of identifying people we want to fire. Mm-hmm. It's a genuine process of engagement. Yes. So she asked me to facilitate a lot of processes. So I brought in, you know, things like guided meditations and mindfulness and yes music and <laughs> kind of stick things. I love diversity and process. I like using ceremony and ritual. Uh-huh. And in South Africa, those things are, are really wonderful. You know, people love them. Yes. So creating community, creating, just creating safe spaces. And mm-hmm. people start to flourish and the, their eyes are lighting up, you know, seeing that they're being listened to. Yeah, it's very powerful. I'd like you to imagine that you're talking to a young leader and think of three things that you would tell that young leader to help them lead the culture more effectively of their team. So this is someone starting out on their leadership journey. So this might be things that you wish you'd known when you were a younger 
leader in business, what you know, three mm. things that you would tell that young leader now to help them on their way? Mm. So the first one I think would be don't believe anything you've read or been taught or told about leadership. Mm. Don't don't read leadership books. I would say you're gonna lead, you're gonna first learn experientially by attuning to your own experience. Yeah, yeah. So that for me would be about your instinctual awareness. Like, can you connect with your healthy human instincts? And that is your gut intelligence. Wow, that's great. That when something feels mm. off, it's probably because it's off. Mm. And when you feel people going dead quiet and there's ice in the air <laughs> because somebody's being brutal as a leader, that's your instinctual intelligence telling you that this is not a good thing and don't emulate them. So that would be my first thing. That's, is, that's really good. Tune to yourself. Uh, yes. that's, a, that's a really good one. That's a powerful message. So for me, that's, that's really the theme of the work, and that's what healing is, is how do we recover the health of our instincts? Mm-hmm. Because if we've been shamed and told to shut up, if we protest against what our parents do, then that instinct gets damaged. And the work is about the restoration of the instincts. So knowing what feels safe and good and when you feel a sense of agency so I often ask people, tell me about a time in your life. Say you're a young leader, a supervisor for the first time. Tell me a time in your life where you felt a powerful sense of agency, that you made something happen and you were proud of it. Okay, let's go back to that time. How did your body feel? How did your posture feel? Hmm. Be that person. Go to that moment. Let's talk now about what made that possible in you. So what courage may be, what qualities, what drive, what, what commitment to a specific goal made you know that you had to do that thing. Mm. So tapping into that core agency mm. that was somehow expressed somewhere. And if they have had a very difficult background, they, they might struggle to think of examples. So sometimes I'll say, that time you organized a birthday party for your baby sister. No, it can be any example, but what I want to connect someone with is their sense of agency, mm. that they, they have and they can do stuff. And then the other questions would be similar, is about your feeling center and your heart. When have you experienced a moment of serenity? When have you experienced a moment of equanimity? Mm. And to be able to really, with the young leader, amplify their awareness of their inner resources. Mm-hmm. And when someone is has a sense of capacity in themselves, they're more able to listen. And once we've got some inner capacity, they can then go and have conversations with people in their team and say, you know, what do you need from me in order to access your sense of agency? So there's a ripple effect. Mm. And then what from a thinking perspective, it'll be, you know, decondition your brain. Don't mm. believe your own ears. That mm. 
that they can start to to think more independently mm-hmm. and be able to develop their own innate discernment around is what I'm hearing truly relevant to the context? Where is a challenge arising in me that, that there is cognitive dissonance? And I don't think this leader's idea, my boss's idea is going to work. So how do I formulate that argument in a compelling way and use my brain, my own brain? Mm-hmm. So I, this is my coaching process. And with a young leader, I would try and give them three messages. Yes. Is around their own brain, their own heart, and their own agency. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. That no, that's very, that's very powerful. I really like that. So just in wrapping up, Ingrid, thanks very much for talking with me today. I already have had lots of conversations with you in the coaching space, and I've really appreciated the work we've done together. I'm pretty much in awe of your thinking at times. So that's your seven thinking style, I guess, is um, you know the, that ability to connect the dots and the depth of wisdom and knowledge that you have uh, constantly has an impact on me. So that's why I keep working with you. Um, well, thank you, John. So kind words. Here's some coaching moments from today's show. Number one, instead of trying to embed or cascade values in your team, embrace the positive values that already exist in the people you lead. You will amplify those values by recognizing and appreciating them. Number two, If you want to have an impact on the people you lead, make a lifelong commitment to your own development as a person. This is great role modeling and they will notice. Number three, use your listening presence when leading. To build engagement, practice engaging with the people you lead and they will engage with you. That's all for now. I'm John Bradbury and this was my Workplace Culture Podcast. 